Of the seven letters addressed to the churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2 through 3, the letter to the church in Thyatira is the longest and filled with the most correction. The city itself is the least known, least culturally significant, and least remarkable of the cities. Thyatira is very rarely mentioned in ancient literature. It is a site covered by the modern town of Akishar. There isn't much left of Thyatira, but there are several things that we know about this city from first century AD. First of all, Christianity likely reached Thyatira because of Paul's work in Ephesus. He spent years teaching and discipling there, and his influence from that city spread to the whole region. We read about this in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, which describes Paul's time in Ephesus. It says, he took disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in that province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. The only other biblical reference to Thyatira comes from one of Paul's missionary journeys. In Acts 16, we read about a woman named Lydia who was a seller of clothing and fabric which was dyed purple. That was a rare and expensive commodity. Lydia became a Christian at Philippi, but she was originally from the city of Thyatira. In Acts 16, 14, it says, one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Thyatira was a blue collar labor town that served as a trade city. It wasn't the banking and commerce center like Ephesus. It wasn't as luxurious as Smyrna, and it certainly wasn't the political and religious center that Pergamum was. No, Thyatira was known for working hard and for playing hard. In Thyatira, there were a lot of trade guilds. The modern equivalent for these might be a mixture of labor unions and organized crime families. They were powerful, influential, and they dominated everyday life. These guilds had various standards for their members. There were standards for how work was done on a daily basis, and there were monthly meetings and even regulations that extended into their personal and religious lives. This religious impulse came from the fact that each union also had a Greek patron god associated with it. So faithful worship of that god was expected in order to ensure the prosperity of the trade. Christians who refused to participate faced isolation and certainly suffered economically. It didn't matter what your trade was, you would be part of a guild. If you worked with bronze or metal like many of them did, you would be in a trade guild. If you worked with textiles like Lydia, you were part of a trade guild and they held an incredible sway over businesses, employers, and in fact, the city as a whole. The trade guild would help you find work and they'd protect you if there were any problems. But if you ever got sideways with the guild, you were out. And they would simply wish you good luck as you struggled to find work, provide for your family all on your own. The trade guilds at Thyatira had a main patron god named Apollo. Apollo was a god that all Romans worshipped, but over time the trade guilds adopted him as the focus of their worship. Apollo was known as the son of God because he was the son of Zeus. In fact, coins that have been found here bear the inscription, son of God, along with the picture of Apollo. It is into this cultural reality that Jesus speaks when he addresses himself to believers in Thyatira as the true son of God. Being a Christian here was really difficult. So much commerce and government in the ancient world was tied to worshiping pagan gods. Christians were forced to worship Apollo or be removed from the trade guilds. And this placed immense pressure on the believer to compromise. There is very little indication that believers living in this city were managing that pressure well. 
Instead, we get the sense that their faith was just crumbling as they allowed influences to creep in that were destroying their view of Jesus and the truth. So whether it was from false teaching or simply pressure from society, these Christians were off course and in desperate need of guidance from Jesus. His letter steps into their reality, their problems, with a clear message of truth for this wayward church. Well, good morning and welcome to Northridge Church. We're excited to have you here this morning. Whether you're joining us from Webster, Greece, Henrietta, or Aranakoy, thank you for being here, taking a, just a small slice of your weekend and hanging out with us. And we're excited. Hopefully you feel energized this morning, got a little extra sleep, so you should feel pretty good, loose, and ready, right? Okay, or not. I mean, whatever, you know. So if you haven't been here the last couple weeks, we've kind of jumped into this series called Seven. A series built off of Revelation chapter 2 and 3 where Jesus, through a man named John, he, he writes seven letters to seven churches. Letters that were written over 2,000 years ago, but what's amazing is they intersect our reality today. And just to review, to catch you up, we started with the church in Ephesus, a church that was known to have lost its first love. It drifted away from God, and it really didn't do that because of bad things, they just took the best thing and replaced it with good things. And how easily we can fall into that trap. The second week we talked about the church in Smyrna, a church that endured pain and hardships and persecution. And we talked about how we all face pain in our life and, and God uses pain to build us up, but the enemy likes to use the pain in our life to destroy our faith. And really the question we asked is, is, your, is the pain you're enduring in your life making you or breaking you? Last week, we spoke about the church in Pergamum, a church that had this choice to blend into culture or stand up for their calling, to blend in or to stand out. And we, we noticed that this church decided to blend into culture. And when we blend into culture and we choose call, culture over calling, it causes us to compromise. And small compromises in our walk with God lead to major changes in our walk with God. And it's week four, we're looking at the church in Thyatira. And this church brings up this tension that probably we all face as Christians who are walking with God. This tension of, you know, as a church, we're called, our mission here at Northridge Church is to reach more and better disciples. And something we're passionate about is reaching people who are far from God, who might be searching for hope. But in that pursuit comes this tension. This tension that we, we might face at times in our life is when we're passionate about reaching people far from God, we have to be careful because in that pursuit of something good, sometimes we try to reach people who are far from God, but we end up becoming like people who are far from God. We get trapped into becoming just like the people we're trying to reach. And that's what happened to the church in Thyatira is they were passionate about reaching people who are far from God, but the problem was is as they reached them, they started to become like them. If you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Revelation chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to provide one for you. You can open up your app or you can go to your Bible on your iPhone or your iPad. If you're using one of our Bibles, it's going to be page 992. 
And as you're finding your way to Revelation chapter 2, I want to give you a glimpse into this city called Thyatira because it's a little different than the other three churches that we've looked at so far. You see, Ephesus and Pergamum and Smyrna were all major cities. They were powerful. They were rich. They were well-known. Thyatira is not like that. Thyatira is a blue-collar, hard-working factory town. It's one of the least known of the cities in the seven. It's just this hardworking, full of tradesmen, blue-collar factory town. And Jesus speaks into that reality as we start this letter in verse 18 of chapter 2. He says, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, again, we see this constant theme where Jesus introduces himself to this church. He identifies who he is. But what's interesting in this letter that's significant and unique from the other letters is Jesus does this in two ways. The first way, he just clearly states who he is. But the second way, he uses a symbol. You see, it says these are the words of him who is the son of God. God just comes out and declares, Jesus just comes out and declares who he is. I am the one, the true, the only son of God. Why does Jesus do this? Well, if you know what's happening in Thyatira, it's pretty clear. Because if you went to this city in first century and you asked who is the son of God, the majority of people would have told you Apollo. Apollo was the son of Zeus. Zeus was known as the king of kings. Apollo was known as the son of God. And so there was confusion in this culture. Who's the son of God? Most people, there was coins in this culture that had Apollo's picture and it had the inscription, son of God. And so Christians started to to kind of blend into that reality. They were confused and Jesus just makes it clear. Hey, I want you to understand who the real son of God is. It's me, it's Jesus, it's who I am. But then he uses the symbol. He uses the symbol of fire and bronze. He says, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. And Jesus speaks directly into their circumstances and directly into that city. It's almost a subtle reference to what the city was like because it was full of trade guilds, what we would call modern day unions. And this city was full of craftsmen. And one of the major tools that they used was metal or bronze They would heat up fires and they would heat them up so hot that they could manipulate the metal and craft swords or shields or tools. And Jesus speaks right into the reality. He says, I want you to understand up front. You might be confused at who the son of God is, but let me me tell you, it's me, Jesus. I'm the one true son of God. But then he continues, he encourages this church. Verse 19, it says, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, and your service and perseverance. And that you are now doing more than you did at first. So Jesus begins to encourage this church. He says, I know your love and your faith. I know you're passionate about reaching people who are far from God. I know you've persevered in my name and you've dealt with some persecution. He also says this. He says that I I know that now you're doing more than you did at first. It's interesting. Jesus says to the church, hey, maybe, maybe it was growing. You're doing more now than you did when you started. Maybe it's a growing church. Maybe they're adding ministries. But it's interesting. It's almost as if Jesus is setting them up. Because I think we fall into this trap sometimes as Christians. Is we automatically think growth means health. If I'm growing, I must be healthy. And that's not always the case. Sometimes there's things in our culture and in our world that are growing but aren't 
good. And Jesus speaks to that, verse 20. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of foods sacrificed to idols. So Jesus encourages them. He says, hey, you're, you're known for your love and your faith. You're known for reaching people who are far from God. But there's a problem. You've allowed those people who you've been reaching to change the culture of the church, and now it's leading people astray. He says, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, when we read that word, that name, Jezebel, that probably wasn't her name. This false teacher who Jesus is speaking about, her name probably wasn't Jezebel because in Scripture, the name Jezebel is a symbolic word. It's a symbolic name. In fact, you got to go all the way back to 1 Kings chapter 18 to understand what's going on in here. The nation of Israel, the king, his name is Ahab, and he makes this ginormous mistake. He marries a woman, and her name is Jezebel. And Jezebel is this evil, nasty woman, and her sole goal is to eradicate, to move God out of the picture in Israel. She wanted to get rid of the one true God out of the nation of Israel. And she began doing this by introducing the nation of Israel to sexual immorality, to sexual orgies. And over the course of time, with these sexual orgies and sexual immorality, there were a lot of unwanted pregnancies. And so they would take these babies that nobody wanted, and they would sacrifice them to other gods. It got so bad that Jezebel was chasing down the prophets of the true God and having them slaughtered. And we see this in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 4. It says, while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hid them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. And Jesus looks into this church that was known for loving, and he says, you've tolerated this woman long enough. You've allowed her to change the landscape and push people to sinful activities. And right here, you get a glimpse of who Jesus is. You get a glimpse into the heart of God. Because I think we fail to realize this about God and Jesus. Is do you recognize that Jesus is holy? I mean, we just sang about it. The holiness of God. That God is perfect. He's blameless without sin, and in his holiness, you have to understand that God does not tolerate sin. God does not tolerate sin. There's never a time in your life or in my life where we indulge in the practices of sin, where we step into disobedience to God, and God looks down and he smiles on us. It will never happen. Because God in his holiness and in his perfection, God does not tolerate sin. And he looks to this church who has kind of flirted with sin, played around with it. They've allowed people to come in and teach sinful practices to this church. And this brings up a really hard tension that we all face. Because we live in a culture today that preaches tolerance. We live in a culture today that intolerance is not tolerable. You have to believe and agree with everyone. That's what our culture says. Is that is where the world we live in, that's the reality we live in today. And so we are faced as Christians, as people who are trying to follow God. How do we manage this tension where in the culture we live in, we're supposed to be tolerant, but we worship a God who doesn't tolerate sin? 
That's hard to navigate. That's hard to really understand, like, how do I walk and where can I walk and where can't I walk? How do I reach a world that is full of sin without falling into the trap of becoming sinful? And I bet you some of us, we wrestle with this tension. This is a real reality in our culture and in our walk with God is, man, how do I navigate this? And I want to start here. I want to start here because I think we have to understand that there's a big difference between acceptance and approval. There's a big difference between accepting someone and agreeing with someone. And maybe you're new to Northridge Church. Or maybe you've been coming here for a long time. And I just want everybody to understand this about Northridge Church At all four of our campuses, our doors will be open to everyone. We will be open. We will be a church that accepts every single person. And you don't have to get your life figured out in order to come to Northridge Church. You don't have to have everything put together. You don't have to figure out who God is and what he wants in your life for you to come to his church. Our doors will be open to everyone, people who have their lives put together and people who don't. We'll be a church who accepts everyone, but you have to understand. That doesn't mean we agree with every lifestyle of every person who walks in our doors. There's a major difference between accepting someone and loving someone and being there for someone and agreeing or approving of the lifestyle they live. And we don't have to look any farther than our Savior for the standard he set because Jesus accepted everyone, but he didn't agree with everyone. You see this all throughout the Gospels. It's laced with this truth is Jesus loved sinners. Jesus loved people who were broken, hurting, in search for hope. In fact, all the other religious people got mad at Jesus because he was hanging out with sinners. And Jesus loved people who were far from him. He loved people who were broken. He healed sinful people, hurting people. But he didn't agree with all of them. And we see a beautiful picture of this in a story in John chapter 8. Maybe you've heard this story before. It's the story where a woman's caught in adultery. She's cheated on her husband. The religious people want to stone her, and they get ready to stone her, and Jesus is like, hey, if you don't have sin in your life, throw a stone. And they all leave. They all walk away. And Jesus looks at this woman, and he says, where are your accusers? And then he says these words. I think these are words as Christians that we need to learn and implement into our life. Verse 11 of chapter 8, he says, then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. It's an amazing moment in Jesus' life because it speaks directly to us that we can learn this beautiful marriage where Jesus finds a woman who's guilty, who's sinful, who's broken, and he says, I don't condemn you. I love you at your darkest. Do you realize that today? Maybe someone needs to hear that at one of our campuses. God loves you in the mess of your life. At your darkest place and your messiest place in life, God loves you right there. But he loves you enough not to leave you there. He loves you enough to say, hey, I'll pick you up and I'll point you in a better way. He says, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you, but you gotta walk away from this. You gotta live a different lifestyle than this. Go and leave your life of sin. And this speaks volumes to us as Christians who are trying to navigate this tension of tolerance but not tolerating sin. We have to learn this beautiful marriage that Jesus shows. We need to learn to show grace 
with truth. Grace with truth. Hey, I love you. And I'll walk with you in the darkest places of your life, but I'm asking you to walk in a different direction. I'm pointing you to Jesus who can change your destiny, who can change your direction. And that's what Jesus does with this woman. He shows her grace. He says, I know, I know you're guilty, but I don't condemn you. I still love you. But go, leave your life of sin. The church in Thyatira became guilty of tolerating sin, of becoming like the world they were trying to reach. And this is the reality of what Jesus says to him in verse 21. He says, I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. And maybe this is a warning for some of us today. Maybe God's given you enough time to repent of the sin that you're flirting with, that you're addicted to, He's given you time to repent, but you just aren't willing to get rid of it. And maybe this is a strong warning for all of us. He says, hey, maybe we need to wake up. He says, I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. And this is a side of Jesus that we like to pretend doesn't exist. This is a side of Jesus that we just don't want to admit is there because we like gracious and loving Jesus. We love Jesus, the kind of Jesus that allows us to live however we want and we don't have to suffer the consequences. That's the Jesus we love. We love loving and kind and generous Jesus. But do you recognize that Jesus is also holy? And here you get to picture another side of Jesus. In his holiness, he becomes this righteous judge that doesn't tolerate sin, that can't stand sin. And you see it in these words. He says, I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I mean, these are intense words. Jesus isn't joking around anymore. He's not like, oh, I know you've kind of walked away and you're indulging in sin. No big deal. No, he's like, hey, wake up. This is a, the real deal. This is serious. And we have to understand that Jesus takes the tolerance of sin seriously. This isn't a joke. This isn't funny anymore, he says. And look what he says. He says, I will make those who commit adultery to suffer intensely. I will strike her children dead. These are pretty vivid and powerful words from our Savior. And we realize that he's serious. But we also realize that tolerating sin has its consequences. When we allow sin to hang around in our lives, when we allow sin, when we indulge in sin on a regular basis, when we choose to disobey God, here's the reality. There are consequences. There will be pain. There will be suffering. And Jesus makes that clear. If you want to hang around with sin and you want to in, indulge in the pleasures of sin and you think sin's fun and great, give it time. Wait a little minute. Give it a week, a month, and you'll start to experience the true reality of sin and the consequences of what you're indulging in. And man, this, is, this wasn't a, a, a fun message to study for. 
Because God began to open my eyes in my own life of things that were there that didn't belong. Areas in my life where I have been allowing stupid things to linger. And it led me to this question that I had to search inside of my heart and a question that I think we as Christians, we need to ask on a regular basis is what sin are you tolerant of in your life? What sin are you allowing to just linger, hang around? This might be where it gets awkward for some of us because maybe it's you today. You know what? You've been dating someone for a long time. And you made the decision to, to move in together. And that's not God's best for your life. But you just tolerate it. Maybe today you tolerate the sin of gossip. Where you think it's okay to talk about anybody and anything. And in fact, you've disguised your gossip for a good thing. You tell people you just want to pray about their situation, but really you just want to know the drama that's going on. And you've tolerated it. Maybe today you've tolerated an unhealthy lifestyle where God is no longer your security, but something on your plate is. And when you're depressed and when you're lonely and when you're hurting, you don't go to God, you go to food. And it's led you to an unhealthy lifestyle. Maybe today it's unforgiveness, where somebody hurts you, and it's been a year or two, and you use that hurt as ammunition to hurt them back, and you hold unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart, and you tolerate it. Maybe today you tolerate cozy, comfy Christianity, or you just stop taking risks for the gospel. Sure, you show up to church every single week and you sit in the same chair, but you just sit there in your cozy, protected Christianity and you tolerate it. This is a question I had to look and ask myself. The question that I'm asking you is what sin are you allowing to linger? What are you tolerating in your life that you know Jesus isn't okay with? Take a look at this video. As we said, guilds were centered around a particular trade and they would certainly expect their members to work hard. But then they would meet and throw parties for their members and expect them to party hard as well. During these gatherings, they would worship the God Apollo there would be food that would be eaten in worship of Apollo, and even various types of immorality would be encouraged. If you chose not to go, you would often be expelled from the guild, making it very hard for you to continue your job and be profitable. In this difficult situation, what should a Christian do? If he quits the union, he loses his position and his standing in society. He may have to suffer, hunger, and experience persecution. On the other hand, if he remains in the guild and attends the immoral feast, eating things sacrificed to idols and continuing in sexual sin, he denies his Lord. They were faced with a hard decision, leave the guild or deny their faith. Based on the contents of this letter, we see that many made the wrong choice. They persisted in allowing voices of lies and deceit to exist in their ranks and poison their view of God, leading to more and more compromise. Jesus sharply corrects them and warns them of the serious destruction coming from those who continue to reject the truth. So the question for us is really, are we tolerant to the influences in our lives that question the teachings of Jesus? 
Do we allow the voices to lure us away from what we know to be true in our minds, our hearts, and actions? Jesus was extraordinarily firm in his letter to these believers about the importance of rejecting false teaching and choosing to do what is right. By the condition of your life today, where would you say you are with this? Maybe you'd say you're just a little more tolerant than Jesus? Well, based on this letter, should you be? Or instead, should you become serious about rooting sin out of your life and helping others take that same step? This message to Thyatira seems really clear. You can only serve one master. So maybe you find yourself there. Maybe you find yourself allowing something sinful to just be a part of your life. And this is what Jesus says to that church because that was the church in Thyatira. He says, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burdens on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Jesus says to the remaining faithful people in this church, he says, hey, I will not impose any suffering on you. You haven't learned her so-called deep secrets of sexual immorality. But he almost gives us our, our application. He almost gives us our takeaway. He says, except hold on to what you have. And I think for some of us who have sin in our life, I think the first step in removing that is we have to hold on to Jesus. I would like to say it like this, cling to Jesus. Cling to him. And I know, I, I know, this is so cliche and this is so churchy right? Like, I mean, isn't that the answer to like every Sunday school answer? Isn't that the answer to every life group question? Like, just cling to Jesus. Man, if you want, if you want your life to be better, just cling to Jesus. Just hang around Jesus. This is amazing. Just, just cling to him. But I want to give you some imagery of what I actually mean when I say cling to Jesus. Because we think this is just this, oh, I'll hang around Jesus. I'll come to church. I'm, I'm clinging to him. But let's just pretend all of us for a second are, are rock climbers. We like to, to climb rocks, and, and you're a pretty good rock climber at this point. And you come to this mountain that you've climbed on numerous occasions, and you just decide, I don't, dang. <laughs> so you get to this rock mountain, and I don't know if it's thundering in Greece or Webster or Henrietta, but we just got a good boom of God's power, amen? Amen. So back to the rock mountain. We're climbing this mountain, and you get to this place where you've climbed this mountain on a regular basis, and, and you just decide you don't need a harness. And so you're about three quarters of the way up this mountain, and you're feeling good, and then all of a sudden, you slip, and you begin to fall. And as you're falling, you grasp this root, this branch, in, in this tree, and you're holding on to it, and you realize that if you let go, you're dead. It's over. And so with every muscle in your body, everything that you have, you cling to this tree with all that you have. Everything you've got, you're holding onto it. And that's what I mean to cling to Jesus, that out of everything you are, this clinging revolves around this. You hold on to Jesus so tightly that you can't let go or everything else in your life will fall apart. That's what I mean when I mean hold on or cling to Jesus. And how do we do that practically? I think the first step is we make his word a priority. We make God's word a priority. Now, I'm amazed. I'm absolutely amazed at 
How many people, including myself, we claim Jesus, but we don't give his word any time? I'm amazed at how many people say, man, I love Jesus, but I don't really spend much time in his word. Uh, you know, God's word has just become this, this bookend or this thing that collects dust or this app on our iPhone that we never really open. I mean, do you realize how powerful God's word is? The scripture says it's active. It's, it breathes life into you. But yet we never give it time. And I think we have to get back to a church that makes God's word a priority. How do we do that? I want to give you three ways, three simple ways. The first one is we read it. We read it. Every single day we read it. Did he just say every day? Yes, I said every day. We spend time in God's word every single day. Maybe you're new to Christianity. You're like, man, I've only been following God for five days or a year, and I, I don't know. Just start with one verse. One verse a day. I believe in the power of God's word, and if you read just one verse every single day, I promise you it will start to transform who you are. Maybe you've been following God for a long time. Why not a chapter a day? Why not a book a day? We've got to be in God's word. We've got to read it. But then secondly, we have to apply it. We have to apply it. I know one of the greatest pushbacks for a lot of people of why they don't read God's word is because, hey, I've tried, Drew. I've tried to read God's word, and every time I read it, I don't understand it. I don't get it. I, don't, I have no clue what's going on in God's word. Like, I've tried reading it, and it's just weird language, and I don't understand. And so here's what here's I would challenge you. Because just because I, I'm a lead pastor and I communicate God's word almost every weekend, doesn't mean there's times where I read God's word and I'm like, God, what are you saying? Because this is crazy. I understand that tension. But I've learned to say a prayer almost every time I read God's word. As I say this simple prayer, and I would challenge you to say this when you read God's word. No matter how long you've been following Jesus or you're new to following Jesus, I just pray this simple prayer. God, right after I'm done reading, God, show me something in my life today that can change who I am tomorrow. God, show me something from what I just read in my life right now today that will make me a better father, that will make me a better husband, that will make me a better leader to tomorrow. I promise you, if you pray that prayer, God will, God will answer that. He will show you something that maybe needs tweaked, something that needs changed, or some encouragement he'll give you to be that. So we read it, we apply it, and then we share it. We share it. And here's what I mean by that, is we get into a community group where we tell people, leaders in our group or friends in our group, we say, hey, I'm gonna read God's word and I'm gonna apply it. I'm gonna try to live it every day. I want you to hold me accountable. I want you to hold me accountable. We're memorizing scripture as we go. Psalms 139 is this week. It, David says, search me, O God, and know my heart, know my anxious thoughts. Hey, I'm trying to memorize scripture. I'm gonna share it with my community group so they hold me accountable, that I'm living God's word, that I'm being a good wife or a husband, a spouse. I'm being a good leader. I share it. That's why we push everybody to community groups in our church. So you are surrounded by the people of God to push you towards God. And so if you're not in one, I challenge you to jump in. Get the people of God around you to push you to being coming more like Jesus. So we make his word a priority. But then secondly, and this speaks directly to the text, I think we have to remove the sin in our lives that we are tolerating. We remove the sin. We eradicate it. But I know for a lot of us, we want to do this. 
but we just don't know how. Like, I think for a lot of us, we can really, like, look at our life, and we can, we can pick out some things that don't belong, sinful things. We know they're there, but we, we really don't know what to do. Like, we've prayed the prayer, God, please remove this from my life, and nothing's happened. We've tried to seek action, like, God, help me remove this, but nothing's really happened. So we don't know what to do, and I want to show you how we get rid of sin in our life, because I think a lot of us, we desire it. But we find ourselves praying for forgiveness, saying, God, I'll never do that again. We find ourselves indulging in it again. And we live in this vicious cycle. And I think sin is a lot like weeds. Anybody have weeds in their yard? I've always wanted to have one of those yards that was just all grass. It'd be so beautiful, but no, it never happens. And weeds grow where you don't want them to be. No matter how much you pick them, They seem like they just keep coming back. And weeds are a lot like sin. I think for some of us today, I brought some beautiful weeds with me. I think for some of us, this is what our life looks like right now. Is we're tolerating sin. We're tolerating the weeds. And it's not because we don't love God and it's not because we don't want to remove it. We just don't know how. Or maybe there's some of us today that If we're honest as the church, we don't necessarily want to get rid of our sin because sin is sexy. Sin is fun. It's pleasurable. If it wasn't, we wouldn't want it. And so here's the first thing we do. We're not sure we're ready to give it up yet. And so we take out our first tool and we just kind of convince ourselves, you know, let's let's grab some scissors and hey, I don't want to get rid of it, so I'll I'll just trim this this weed patch up a little bit. And if I can just confuse people to thinking maybe it's a flower or maybe it's a bush, if I can just trim this enough to look like a nice bush and a nice little flower pot, maybe no one will notice. And so we, we trim it up. We make our sin look good. We, we try to avoid it sometimes, but we like it enough. And so we just, we just trim it up. And we, we, we say to ourselves like, okay, if I just keep it, trimmed, it'll be all right. It'll look like a flower, but no one will really notice it. The problem is, is this works for like a season. It works for maybe a week, a month, maybe even a year. But eventually, it grows back, and it gets thicker, and it becomes almost uncontrollable. It takes over And we start to realize that we've trimmed it enough, but there's consequences. It started to affect our marriage. It started to affect our relationships. It started to affect our business. And now we look at it and we're like, we've got to do something. It's becoming uncontrollable. I can't trim it anymore. And so we take action. We're like, okay, I'm going to remove this from my life. And so we take action. We come clean to our spouse. We tell people what's going on. We seek counseling. And so we bring out our second tool. If you've ever done some weeding, Roundup is awesome. So we, we, we you know, we go seek counseling and we, we talk to a counselor. We pray to God, God help me. We spend time in God's word and we start shooting this weed or this sin. I love Roundup. It's like I've got a gun to shoot in church. This is amazing. Just give me a moment, okay? And what's amazing about Roundup is it will kill that weed. In a week, 
this will completely die and turn yellow and it will fall to the ground. And we just pick it up and we remove it and the weed's gone. The sin's gone. And what we do is we've taken action, we've removed the sin, and we claim victory. We did it, God. We beat it. The sin is removed. It's gone. I got it, God. You're amazing. And we claim victory. There's no more sin. And this lasts for a year, two years, three years, five years. Something along the way happens. We get comfortable. We drop our guard. And before we know it, we forget reading, about reading God's word. We forget about applying it. We let go of those tools that God has given us. And we look back and the weed's growing again. It's there. And it devastates us. Because we thought we had victory. We thought we conquered that sin. We thought we overcame it. And it's been like two years or three years since that addiction left. It's been two or three years. And we've, we thought through God's power and through what he did in our life, it was gone. And now we look and it's back. And it devastates us. It crushes us. And we just say, whatever. I quit. I can't win. I can't win. And I think we fail to realize one thing. That Roundup is a one-time kill. And I think that's how we approach sin, is if we just remove it, we win. But the truth is today is sometimes as Christians, I think sometimes Christians are afraid to get their hands dirty. And I think sometimes we gotta get our hands dirty with sin. We gotta, we gotta get into the midst of the battle. Sometimes we got to take a shovel and first and foremost, we just start ripping out the things that don't belong in our life. We just start getting rid of the sin in our life and we, we get rid of it. We remove every root and everything and we don't stop there though. We don't stand and say, hey, I'm victorious. It's gone, awesome. No, we live in this reality. Just because it's gone now doesn't mean it won't come back. And so I will constantly fight the battle. I will constantly read God's word and apply it. I'll constantly share it so people hold me accountable. And I'll say to God, God, if there's anything in here, if there's anything in here, I'll constantly stir the soil and I will constantly remove anything that's in here and I'll live my life fighting this battle with my sword, God's word in my hand and say, hey, I haven't, I haven't made it yet, God. I haven't made it yet. Until I get to you, God, and I'm with you in heaven, I'll live this battle and I'll fight this battle and I will not allow weeds to grow in my life. Because I think we just gotta come to this conclusion, God takes sin seriously. So we should take it seriously. And so I'd ask you, what's growing in your life that doesn't belong? What's there that you know you gotta dig up and remove and not just dig up and remove but fight against every single day with the word of God? Sin is serious. We need to take it seriously. Let's pray. God, help us. We recognize that the only reason we can fight sin is because of what you did on the cross. You destroyed our sin. You conquered it on the cross, God. 
But that doesn't mean we, face a, that doesn't mean we don't face a battle today. And so I pray that you would help us to fight sin every day to remain in your holiness. In Jesus' name, amen.